0: Um, to this talk in the 141st session of the Proceedings of the Aristotelian Society Um, and we're absolutely delighted to welcome uh, Professor Tommy Curry. Tommy is Professor of Philosophy with a personal chair in Africana Philosophy and Black Male Studies at the University of Edinburgh. Um, His research areas are 19th century ethnology, critical race theory and black male studies. Um, He's the author of The Man Not, Race, Class, Genre, and the Dilemmas of Black Manhood of 2017, and Another White Man's Burden, Josiah Royce's Quest for a Philosophy of Racial Empire of 2018. Um, And today he's going to speak to us on the question, must there be an empirical basis for the theorization of racialized subjects in race gender theory? And without further ado, it's my pleasure to hand over to Tommy. So over to you, Tommy.
1: Thank you so much. Uh, Let me begin by saying that this is a paper that I've been thinking about uh, for quite some time, but never really had the opportunity uh, to write about it and flush out fully. Uh, So I hope that you will uh, enjoy uh, some of the problems that I'm trying to pose. Uh, So when we think of the mind of an intelligent philosopher, uh, we understand that it's not a well from which theory and method springs. Well formed and self justifying. Uh, Perhaps this statement is irrelevant to how one thinks about theory and method more generally, uh, because it is presumed to be the task of analytic or continental philosophy and often inapplicable to philosophies of race and gender. After all, race and gender are thought to be philosophy's objects. As topics of inquiry, concerns about race and gender proceed uh, axiomatically representing the interests, perspectives, and experiences of groups, not only excluded from academic philosophy, but burdened by the failures of philosophy to attend to their struggle and survival. So there's a much, there's a much more serious urgency uh, among these categories than others when we generally think about. To be understood by more mainstream philosophers, uh, race gender theory is often constrained. It's often made to confirm the ideological commitments of previous disciplinary regimes. Ideology refers to the brute beliefs reflecting the interest of a community or the collective consciousness communities express as the basis of the programs they pursue. Such programs give rise to disciplinarity and serve as the criteria of expertise. To give such beliefs the appearance of knowledge, theory is used to justify ideology and enable beliefs to appear normal, logically coherent, and organized. So whereas theory establishes an interdependence between facts in the world and ideas about the world, such that the relationship between the two seem natural and explanatory, methodology is the rules or practices that act to protect and justify one theory while disproving others. So posited as objective, theory and method. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, method purport to be egalitarian endeavors accessible to any trained philosopher, rather than the product of a specific set of ideological commitments or disciplinary programs. However, race and gender theory uh, are no different in its constitution. Uh, They present themselves as specialized knowledge, explain the nature of racial and gender inequality. But the question that I'm asking is what community does race and gender theory serve? What ideological program is being justified And more importantly, what facts about the world, if any, are being used to substantiate the seemingly relationships presented as obvious and evident? So these questions are not driven by the relationship that race and gender theory have to positivism or other style of verificationist epistemology. My questions are much more narrow and focused. I'm interested in how entities claim to be the products of racial and gendered experience and empirical observation become conceptually confined to abstractions of social groups rather than empirically informed theories about social. groups. So I argue that race gender theory as not ideal theories are in actuality ad hoc accounts of group formation determined primarily by political ideology and not an actual account of empirical phenomena. Now, what I want to stress here <clears throat> is that my concern is we're having debates between ideal theory and non-ideal largely on the, on the back of the work that someone like Charles Mills has done. Oh, but what we're trying to consider is whether or not we can start with ideal notions of you know, human behavior, rationality, or values like democracy, and get to an accurate social analysis or normative evaluation of what we should do in a society versus non-ideal theories <clears throat> where people are suggesting that these are much closer to the actual world and give better descriptions. I'm suggesting that these are really artificial arguments, that neither one of them actually gets the world correct. And while ideal theory may pay no attention to the world, uh, non-ideal theory deliberately misconstrues the world in favor of political and ideological uh, communities. So when philosophers tend towards abstractions and generalization regarding matters having profound social consequences uh, rather than concrete studies of the phenomena in question, uh, the humanist aim of philosophical inquiry tends to incentivize a Manichaeanism between social scientific and philosophical approaches to social problems. In philosophy, general patterns of malady are identified as products of some historical overarching system that the philosopher aims to solve by arguing against the values produced by the system, if not the system itself. So racism is thought to be defeated by anti-racist values, segregation and apartheid are thought to be resolved by integration, patriarchy is thought to be defeated by feminism, and so forth and so on. This dialectical approach towards social problems is framed by what is accepted as the political antithesis of the malady. So regardless of success or failure, generalizable values are assumed to be obvious from the political gestures of these liberal policies throughout the 20th century. Philosophers tend to engage social problems through idealization. Imagining the tenets of a more perfect society, the philosopher often proceeds by outlining the necessary and sufficient conditions in which more desirable values and behaviors could and hopefully would thrive. This is of course nonsense, given that the social problems being engaged by the philosopher are actually the result of social processes and societal inequalities, not the rational or irrational directives of individuals. However, this mode of analysis is still preferred method of engaging philosophical problems, right? So this problem has been previously engaged by Mills in his essay, Ideal Theory is Ideology. I don't want to reconstruct the whole argument, but assuming that we're, we're familiar with Mills' argument, he ultimately argues that non-ideal theory is the best way to proceed, right? So rather than this understanding, you know, the ideal formulation of the perfect construction of an airplane, Uh, It's more necessary for us to understand how a plane actually works, for us to understand how it functions in the real world. Now, he makes a similar kind of analysis when he talks about marginalization and discrimination and inequality in the real world. Uh, He suggests that when we're actually modeling humans, human capacities, human interaction, human institutions, and human societies on the ideal as idealist models, um, you never end up exploring how deeply different this is from idealist descriptive models which are focused on the actual workings of injustice in human interactions and social institutions. And you thereby guarantee that ideal as idealized models will never be achieved. So Mills ultimately argues that marginalized philosophers have preferred critical race theory, Marxism and feminism to ideal theories because these non-ideal theories allow for more concrete recognition of subordination while the preference some philosophers have for ideal theory is rooted in ideal theory's tendency to reify white male identity. Mills actually writes that ideal theory is really an ideology, uh, a distorted complex of ideas, values, and norms, and beliefs that reflects the non-representative interests and experiences of a small minority of the national population, middle to upper class white males who are hugely overrepresented in the professional philosophical population. So Mills claims that there's an obvious disadvantage as certain forms of oppression have on specific groups, he asserts it's not in the interest of women to ignore female subordination, or in the interest of blacks to ignore racial subordination, or in the interest of poor to ignore classism. He actually writes that the distinctive experience of women or of non-whites, it will be argued, requires the rejection of the bogus generality, the spurious universalism of hegemonic principles that have proven so clear and inadequate to address the situation of the subordinate. Now, he's of course building this from standpoint of epistemology, where he thinks that the, the abstractions that we get from the idealist descriptive model um, actually capture the essence of the situation of women and non whites in a non abstract way. It's this premise that Mills is uh, advocating that I adamantly uh, disagree with, and I, and I want to explain why. Um, I'm arguing that racial subjects, uh, and when I'm talking about subjects, I'm talking about the construction of racial groups or entities for philosophical thought and analysis, uh, and the traits that they come to be represented by are products not, not actually of group behaviors, uh, attitudes, or symbols, but rather the desired representations of various projects, be they social, criminological, or academic, um, that are needed to justify a specific ideological program. So stated quite simply, I'm suggesting that while Mills suggests that we can get a more accurate picture of actual groups and group disparity and phenomena like racism, sexism, etc., by using non-ideal theory, I'm arguing that the abstractions of are the ideals of description that he thinks come about from this sort of analysis are actually more political products rather than actual observations of the groups he claims to truly understand. Now, why may this be the case? (coughs) Well, a few things. Um, I wanna use the example of uh, Elizabeth Anderson's non-ideal characterization of racism in the imperative of integration. So Anderson's uh, book is an example of non-ideal theory being utilized as a basis for asserting generalizable traits about black people that have very little verification beyond the impressions that she herself has of this group. Um, Anderson suggests, however, that in non-ideal theory, Ideals function as hypotheses to be tested and experienced, right? So we test our ideals by putting them into practice and seeing whether or not they solve the problems for which they were actually dev- devised. By supposing that most racial disadvantages are caused by segregation, Anderson can claim that integration, despite his actual failures as a military strategy in the United States, can actually solve racism. And remember back to the beginning of the essay where I said that non-ideal theory really locates itself in a a dialectical hypothetical, that if segregation is the problem, then not segregation or integration is the solution, right? Uh, These kinds of of, of thinking, these kinds of intellectual models have served as the basis of how we've been dealing with this problem for far too long. Uh, For instance, uh, Anderson argues that segregation leads social groups to form different codes of conduct and communication. Some habits that help individuals in intensely segregated disadvantaged environments undermine their ability to succeed in integrated, more advantaged environments. Now Anderson deliberately constructs a social outgroup of segregated disadvantaged individuals, but later explicitly identifies the members of this group as black and brown males who adopt aggressive antisocial postures and behaviors to ward off criminal attacks against them. Now to gain cultural capital, these black and brown men need to drop their game face at work, so to speak. According to Anderson, the game face is the angry, menacing demeanor these men adopt to ward off attacks in their crime-ridden, segregated neighborhoods. It's the face you wear in the hood when they're trying where and they're going to try to get you, end quote. Uh, this posture is perceived by Anderson as aggressive, um, and she thinks that this scares off whites. And she says, quote, this may be so entrenched that black men may be unaware that they are glowering at others. This reduces their chances of getting higher. Now, Anderson motivates a theory of group level interaction. Remember, Anderson is suggesting to us that we have ideals and ideal formations um, that are trying to address real problems. And we have to find out from experience whether or not this actually operates this way, right? So she's motivating a theory of group level interaction um, that not only suggests or I'm sorry, that not only ignores whites as a group with specific characteristics, but articulates the problem of employment, for instance, Um, not as one of discrimination by whites, but the fear produced by angry black men who don't know that they still have their angry face or their game face on. The deficit of the black male group is presented as conceptually relevant to the sociological or observable outcome. So in this situation, Anderson constructs black men as having a menacing game face, and then she draws a causal relationship between an outcome. The gang face leads to this form of discrimination, right? So the depths of the Black male group is presented as conceptually relevant to what's actually happening in the world. So despite framing the concern as one of segregated social groups, uh, Anderson is not actually discussing sociological dynamics at all, but rather uh, the perceived fear and aggression that whites have towards a specific group, namely Black men. Dismissing racism as the primary cause of the intergroup relation and deliberately not accounting for the ways that the white group can be described by various social science data forces the reader to think about the processes of black and brown male unemployment by being determined by the behavior characteristics of the constructed group rather than the patterns of discrimination demonstrated by white groups historically and sociologically. As such, the character of the group is ideologically asserted poor black men are aggressive and scary, and the outcome of black men being unemployed is asserted to be the product of the group characteristics. As a matter of empirical fact, however, Edison characterization is actually wrong. Multiple studies have shown that black male CEOs who demonstrate intelligence or other agentic behavior are perceived as being dangerous threats to whites. Black male-sounding names, regardless of the actual size of Black men in a white person's immediate environment, triggers whites into thinking that the imagined Black male would be bigger, tar- taller, and more aggressive than comparable white men. In job interviews, Black males, despite education, are thought to lack soft skills and be less intelligent than their female counterparts. Uh, at all sectors across the economy and education levels, all Black men are affected by misandric stereotypes, uh, despite their actual education or demeanor. And Black male income, despite being um, in integrated and desegregated American societies, remain the same as if they were in segregation, still making 51 cents per dollar for what every white man makes. Now, the point here isn't to just prove that Anderson's incorrect about her analysis. What this is showing is that if you describe a group by negative stereotypes, where you can say that a certain group is... Uh, angry or threatening or dangerous, these things are not prevented by non-ideal theory. So describing a, a group by negative stereotypes shows that racial categories, the general descriptions of groups championed by non-ideal theorists, can not only misperceive race gender populations, but have no way of actually recognizing the categories responsible for the perceptions of racially subordinated groups by dominant gender groups. So non-ideal theory may produce descriptions of group subordination, as Mill says, but these descriptions themselves are subsequently idolized as causes or imagined to be capable of explaining the psychology and behavior of the subordinate group as well as the avarice of the dominant groups towards them. In many cases, these idealized as cause abstractions merely reflect personal bias or the ideological commitments imposed on the construction of the group relationship. And this is especially important in the debates that someone like Charles Mills has had with authors like Shannon Sullivan and Elizabeth Anderson. Non-ideal theory suggests that we can utilize ideals as descriptions, that if we look at a racist situation, that we can, in fact, uh, assert that part of the causal relationship that racism has is going to be the phenomena that we want to talk about. So, we want to talk about the underrepresentation of Black philosophers in the field of philosophy across the world. We can assert that, well, when we look at the fact that it's practically all white, that the majority are white men and women, that racism is playing something, and that racism that's in that environment has a causal relationship to the underrepresentation of Black philosophers in that group. However, that assumes that we're describing the group in a particular way and that we actually have that situation sociologically correct. What's happened in these debates is that Anderson and Sullivan have argued that Charles should actually use a much more narrow view of racism, that racism should be thought of as something reserved for white supremacists and neo-Nazis, not for white people who may participate um, and entrench racism or racial inequality, but don't do so deliberately. Now, one of the reasons that I have a problem with this is because if non-ideal theory is supposed to give us descriptions that do a certain kind of work to grasp the world, there is no other category that's been filled in that could do that other work. So if we have to explain the benevolent or unperceived or or not malicious forms of racism through other terms besides racism, as uh, Sullivan and Anderson suggest, then everything else becomes a misunderstanding. And if you do that, We're not getting a very rich view of non-ideal theory. Said differently, if critical race theory can only talk about deliberate forms of racism or white supremacy, then it's not a very rich analytical concept whatsoever, because it's watered down to not offend the potential political alliances that Sullivan and Anderson suggest would be at risk if you had a full concept of white supremacy, as Charles Mills has advocated throughout his work and throughout his his genre of scholarship Mm -hmm. over the last 20 years. Why is this a problem for the theory? Well, it's a problem for the theory because it assumes that philosophical analysis, at least not ideal theory, um, comes about not from our actual abstractions about situations or events that occur, but not ideal theory comes about based on the political efficaciousness of how the category that we utilize actually benefit potential white allies. Again, going back to the dialectical assumption, if the argument is, Racism is solved by anti-racism. One of the necessary components in our field is that anti-racism requires white allyship. It's not a surprise then that Sullivan and Anderson utilize white allyship as the basis to evaluating whether or not certain categories are not simply accurate but beneficial to whether or not white people believe them. This is what I mean when I say that these are fundamentally inaccurate ways to conceptualize what's happening with race and racism under non-ideal theory. But even more so, it's a way to show that the products that we're talking about, the way that we come up with group constructions, are not a matter of actual philosophical analysis, but rather political ideologies based in what community various groups try to put themselves in. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the problem of disaggregation. Uh, throughout, throughout my work, I've been dealing with this issue of how do we understand uh, group identity and group basis, right? And one of the ways that I think this is important is how we understand group-based perpetration and oppression. So what I mean by disaggregation is this. When we have grand theories like classism or Marxism or feminism or critical race theory, we're saying that that takes up or picks up certain structural realities of phenomena in the world. But the way that we talk about groups within those dynamics are largely idealized. And what I mean by that is they don't seem to fit with the at-large conceptualizations of groups that we actually see in the real world. In other words, our philosophical concepts describe groups, but they don't tell us how they function. So a great example of that would be when we talk about things like violence our domestic violence our sexual violence. We have no problem saying, well, look, if we're doing a feminist analysis or an analysis of sexual violence, patriarchy becomes important. So in that world, we presuppose that men are the perpetrators um, and women are the victims. And we apply this view um, through all groups. However, when we start looking at the actual data, right, and I'm using U.S. data, one, because there's not a lot of um, there's not a really good racially, racial sex disaggregated data in the UK, um, but because, you know, people are writing the United States making these arguments, so I think it's extremely important. So when you look at the victimization of women in the United States, especially Black women uh, and Hispanic women, you do see disproportionate rates of contact sexual violence, disproportionate rates of, of rape, right, 5.8 compared to white women, absolutely true, multiracial groups, at the highest rate overall. So when we think about sexual victimization in the United States, this seems to fit both in terms of lifetime prevalence and 12 month prevalence with our conceptualizations. When we look at male victimization, however, right, we see the same kinds of arguments, right? We see context sexual violence at 6.5% as a weighted prevalence. And we see made to penetrate violence being the highest amongst all groups behind Hispanic males. Now, the reason I'm asking this is because I'm curious. How do we then decide which of these characteristics define the group under investigation? So if I say that I'm interested in studying sexual violence under a non-idealist lens, who constructs the basis of the group? What group becomes perpetrator and what group becomes victim? Does it stay the same always? Well, we know given the literature or even a brief content analysis in philosophy, we know that there are very few works that actually take seriously any form of female perpetration or, or male victimization. And of course, this is despite the fact that when we're looking at male victimization, overwhelmingly, when we look at made to penetrate violence, we're looking at female perpetrators almost at 80%. Sexual coercion, female perpetrators are 81, roughly 82%. Unwanted sexual contact, female perpetrator 53%. Right, the only only non-contact uh, unwanted sexual experiences are uh, raced differently, with the exception of male uh, rape, which is uh, penetration only. Right. So, how do we understand these kinds of sociological and criminological phenomena in relationship to philosophical discussions about what we're trying to study? If we employ a feminist lens, the descriptor becomes primarily that of the male perpetrator. But does that actually does that non-ideal theory actually get uh, reality correct. And I want to I continue on this for a moment. Um, when we look at the philosophical conceptualizations of group behaviors and interests, they can't be sustained when we look at them empirically or sociologically. So let's take another example, like political attitudes, right? So if we look at political scientists' uh, studies and, uh, and, and sociological studies on, on liberal attitudes in America, we find something that surprises many people given the research and philosophy we find out that white women are generally not politically liberal entities in the United States. So the world was shocked when 52% of white female majorities voted for Trump. Um, But any empirically grounded account of white women's political behavior in the 20th century will show that since 1952, white women have only voted for a Democratic candidate twice. So across the board, when you look at white voting behaviors, political attitudes, and gender beliefs about leadership, they don't hold true for black and Latino groups in the United States. So when you actually tested things like sexism, or if you operate from the belief that women are generally more progressive than men, um, sexism can't explain the gender gaps that we found in the 2016 election. So further disaggregation, right, of American white women would actually show that heteropatriarchy uh, holds a particular appeal for heterosexual uh, married women. And various studies have shown that in racist societies, sexism actually protects white women from the harshest forms of violence and homicide, that paternalism is actually a characteristic trait that majority of white women actually desire in men. So think about the philosophical conceptualization of this group as one example. So if we say that we conceptualize women as a liberal group, what do we actually mean by that? Where do we get the data from to justify that actual conceptualization of the group? Uh, Across the board, even if we go through history, I'm just using white women as a case study here, but this applies to white men in a lot of ways as well, right? We, we see that the, the histories of racism are not very different. White women participated in enslavement. They participated in spectacle lynchings. They raped black men and boys. Suffragettes actually claimed patriarchy as their own. Charlotte Gilman in 19- 1892 claimed that God gave white women a sacred duty to teach white men racial loyalty and actually groomed them to be imperial patriarchs in the world. In the 20th century, you get clan organizations. In the 1970s, white feminists launched academic political campaigns to class black Black militancy and black men as rapists, right? The list goes on and on and on given the complexities of empire. So then what is it about the conceptualization of the group that's based on the presumptions of group tendencies um, that are the consequences of these identity traits that we think of as idealized uh, descriptors that tell us about actual group behavior and patterns? So why is it that on the one hand we can talk about issues of domestic violence, sexual assault, sexual abuse, in a framework or grand theory that presupposes fixes fixed entities. We know that a non ideal analysis of sexual violence will usually involve some kind of group characterization of men as the perpetrators and women as the victims. But if that doesn't hold true in all cases, or even the majority of the cases given where we are, how do we switch? What then allows us to change the group dynamic of, say, young black men or Hispanic men so that they're victims? Or more provocatively, what then introduces the idea or the conceptualization of white women as perpetrators? These are all questions that I think non-ideal theory generally tries to answer, but does so incorrectly because it utilizes definitions that are given by grand theories rather than particular sociological evidence. So the generalizations that are used to describe groups philosophically simply cannot account for group or meso-level interactions. Non-ideal theorists assume that the categories of subjugation, race, class, and gender are in fact the defining aspects of the interactions between groups. There's no reason for this to actually be the case. One might assert that white groups interact with black groups violently because of racism or white supremacy, but this does not tell us how various white groups interact with black groups or specifically black male or black female groups. A philosopher somewhat familiar with the history of sexual violence against black women during slavery and Jim Crow might reasonably assert (coughs) excuse me, that racial violence against Black women includes sexual assault and rape, but given the general ignorance of the history of racial violence, including sexual violence against men, not understand the history of racism, including the rape of Black men and boys by white men and white women, right? So philosophical analyses of race and gender presuppose commonsensical views of oppression, not expertise. Consequently, The broad generalizations of phenomena such as racism or sexism are deployed in analyses as assumptions about group beliefs and motivations, not specific interactions. Without disaggregating groups and seeking to understand the specific relationships that race, gender groups have to one another, a philosopher becomes incapable of perceiving any of the behaviors easily found throughout history in the social sciences. It is easily observable that sexual violence against males from racial and ethnic populations is common in war and genocides and perpetrated by both men and women. However, the grand theories of oppression simply do not disaggregate down to the specific behavior groups imposed on other groups. The generalizations of description, and here I'm thinking about idolizes description abstractions, merely assert the respective dominant groups behave the same way towards all subordinate groups. So the disaggregation of groups poses three major problems for race gender theory. First, there's an empirical problem where philosophical abstraction seems to be incapable of accurately representing the traits and patterns of behavior shown to be endemic to certain social locations and groups. When social scientific facts about group behavior contradict philosophical abstractions about this very same group, there's no justification to actually prefer the less accurate abstraction. Second, there seems to be an ad hoc selectivity or outright bias towards how some groups are defined by rates of individual violence while others are not. If white women and white men have similar voting behaviors and political attitudes on race historically, why are white men theorized as conservative while white women are theorized to be liberal? If black men report a higher sexual victimization than their female counterparts, why are Black men not theorized as sexual victims, but multiple women with lower rates of sexual victimization in the United States actually are. Lesbian groups have higher rates of IPV than many racial and ethnic male groups, yet the male groups are theorized as violent while lesbian groups are not. Why, right? And third, generalized descriptions of groups cannot account for the specific interactions a dominant disaggregated group has with subordinate disaggregated groups. What I mean by this is that group behaviors that fall outside of the historical or sociological scope of grand theories would have to be learned as historical or sociological facts external to philosophical analysis as the historical are, are then generalized and applied to the groups being abstracted. So there's nothing about creating generalizations from the group themselves that would allow one to perceive specific interactions that are not ideologically situated in an ideological camp like critical race theory, feminism, or Marxism. These methodological problems, or problems showing that there are no rules by which one can arrive at a specific set of reproducible conclusions, demonstrates that the abstractions which come to describe race gender groups reflect ideological worldviews and politically determined depictions of groups, not the group dynamics itself. Now, some philosophers would no doubt suggest that this is why intersectionality is needed. Um, yet these philosophers would be unable to explain why the data presented above has not appeared in any of the intersectional writings of philosophy of the last decade. Rather than refuting the gross generalizations of certain groups, intersectional theories have actually aided in confirming negative stereotypes about various racial male groups while disregarding other forms of violence. However, an important nuance must be made here. Intersexual feminist analysis proceeding by abstraction of philosophy and the humanities more generally have rendered interpretations of Black men that mirror the writings of racist criminologies, but intersectional feminists utilizing empirical methodology in sociology and political science has substantiated completely different findings that have found things, for example, that Black men hold gender attitudes that are just as progressive, if not more progressive, than their female counterpart in other female groups throughout the United States. However. Even the intersectional empiricists have not yet offered any accounts or explanatory theories about female perpetrators of violence in the case of child abuse, spousal abuse, or histories of racism generally. So what I'm suggesting here is that while one may say, we need to understand how categories interact to give uh, some reference to a certain positionality, I would argue in response that there's no way for you to fill in the category. There's nothing about philosophical analysis in and of itself that reveals historical and sociological truth or group behavior. So at best, every kind of philosophical analysis that we do under non-ideal theory is best at best an estimation, but probably a reality, uh, more reflection of the ideological tendency of our specific community that houses the group theory. So the specific idea, or the idea of a specific race gender group being deployed in philosophical analysis is really a construction that appeals to the ideological community conducting the investigation. When empirically informed analyses of group behaviors contradict the abstractions the philosopher claims to represent specific groups, the empirical evidence is rejected as not confirming the ideological belief of the community or the group construct that it aims to serve. So the groups constructed by theory are then used as ideal composites whose interactions with an imaginary can accurately predict and explain the actual predilections for power, avarice, and violence that the group and the individuals of those groups pursue in the real world. Said differently, the political ideations that give rise to the group not only create consensus among scholars towards certain theories, but dictates the state of the world that one considers to actually be real. It's important to grasp that the racialized subject is created to serve the web of beliefs that constitute philosophical communities. The theory of subjugation being used to animate how these groups interact has no actual method. Consequently, the reaffirmation of one's ideology or grand theory is a necessary basis of philosophical interpretation.